Welcome to this Jeremy Bamber and White House Farm podcast. This episode has an accompanying PDF with a map of the house that you can download from our website at www.jeremy-bamber.co.uk. This week we featured two of the alibis which proved that Jeremy Bamber was not responsible for the tragic events at White House Farm on the 7th of August 1985. Both issues revolve around the fact that Jeremy Bamber's sister, Sheila Caffell, was alive and active inside the house, whilst Jeremy was standing outside in the company of the police. The evidence we refer to in this episode has been taken from the disclosed case material released to Jeremy's campaign team in 2011. First issue is the reference to a conversation between police and someone within the house at 05.25am. The second reveals that a 999 emergency call was made from within the house at 0609am and was uncovered in 2002 by the Metropolitan Police. Several police officers who attended the scene were tasked with making handwritten logs, which recorded who was arriving and leaving the scene and at what times. There are also other handwritten logs which recorded all radio messages and other verbal exchanges. Along with these were logs which recorded the actions of the many police officers from an assortment of units who were present outside the house. One entry on a log, timed at 5.25am, records that 05.25, firearms team are in conversation with a person from inside the farm. This wording on the log strongly suggests that this conversation must have been a two-way exchange of words. Otherwise, why describe it as a conversation? It could not have been simply that the police were challenging the property with a loud hailer and receiving no response. Conversation is, by definition, an exchange of words between two or more people. The person in the house involved in the conversation must have been Sheila. Jeremy was outside the house with police officers who were equipped with radios. Therefore, anything they needed to discuss with him, or needed to ask, would have been done face to face. Essex police have never disclosed what this 5.25am conversation was about, or indeed who they were talking to. In fact, they emphatically deny that this conversation ever happened, and yet it is recorded on the radio log which clearly states the time. They claim that the wording in conversation with a person from inside the farm is a reference to police officers speaking with Jeremy because it says inside the farm and not inside the house. But why would the police go to the trouble of making an entry on the radio log at that specific time if it was Jeremy they were talking to? as they had been speaking to him since he arrived at the scene hours earlier. If, as Essex police claim, they were talking to Jeremy, and it was regarding something so important that it had to be noted down on the radio log, why is there no record of what the important information he gave to them was? And why did no police officer refer to this supposed exchange in any disclosed witness statement? They could have referred to Jeremy by name, so why didn't they? In all other messages or references to Jeremy throughout the incident, he was always referred to as Mr. Bamber, or the son. There is only one explanation, and this is that it was Sheila they were in conversation with, as she was almost certainly the only person alive in the farmhouse at 5.25am. In 2004, Jeremy's legal team submitted this issue to the Criminal Cases Review Commission. The defence argued that this was the most powerful evidence that either A. the real perpetrator was still inside the house 
or b someone from the family was still alive and that any such hypothesis would be exculpatory evidence on the applicant Jeremy Bamba and should have been disclosed pre-trial. The commissioners at the CCRC who looked at this issue stated that the radio log was not the most reliable documents to base a decision on. Instead, they turned to unsigned and altered witness statements made by officers who had been involved at the scene. The CCRC advised the defence that they had conducted interviews with Police Sergeant Christopher Buse and Police Sergeant Douglas John Adams and asked them directly if they had any knowledge of contact being made with someone inside the house. In April 2004, the defence contacted the trial judge, Justice Drake, who had recently given a TV interview about Jeremy's case. They set out that prior to, and at the trial, they had not seen the radio log which contained the entry regarding the conversation with someone inside the house. The judge was asked if he had any recollection of this document. Justice Drake responded on the 21st of April 2004 and said that he had no recollection of the radio log, but he believed the reference inside the farm could have referred to anywhere within the boundaries of the farm and not specifically from inside the house. The defence responded to Justice Drake to thank him, but also to raise two issues. Firstly, that the farmhouse was always referred to as White House Farm, and provided the example of an ordnance survey map with the name White House Farm by the house. And this was how the house was commonly known, and the defence could find no examples where the house was just referred to as White House. Therefore, the reference to inside the farm referred to the farmhouse and not the extended area. Secondly, the defence advised Justice Drake that Essex Police claimed the radio log was part of Exhibit 29 at the trial. In a letter to Justice Drake, the defence stated, It seems inconceivable to us that such an experienced High Court judge as yourself, an experienced Queen's Counsel, and now a Circuit Court judge, and an eminent Queen's Counsel, all could have simply forgotten that the radio log was part of Exhibit 29. Your Lordship perhaps now sees the difficulties that we are encountering in a quest for justice for Mr Bamba. In his response, the judge simply reiterated that he believed that the conversation must have been with Jeremy Bamba. If the radio log pages which referred to the police being in conversation with someone from within the farm had been a part of Exhibit 29, it is very odd that no one, including the judge, had any recollection of seeing it. Had these pages been available at trial, it is certain that Jeremy's defence team would have questioned in depth the police officers involved and explored the significance of this message. Could it be that the police were lying about this log being part of Exhibit 29? In their consideration of this issue, the CCRC noted that they agreed with comments that were made by Justice Drake and concluded that the Commission has concluded that there is no reliable evidence confirming that there was anyone in the farmhouse who replied to any of the challenges issued by the TFU and accordingly does not consider this matter to be capable of affording the Court of Appeal grounds to consider Mr Bamba's conviction to be unsafe. It seems particularly odd that any mention of the conversation is not set out in any of the disclosed witness statements of anyone who attended the scene. However, many of the statements from the 77 individuals who we now know were at the scene have never been disclosed. Statements which we do have that refer to the loud hailer were made by PC Alexander Smart, who gave evidence in his typed statement that PC Collins and Delgado then began to call the house with the use of a loud hailer. 
PC Collins and PC Delgado made virtually word-for-word copies of each other's statement and said, We commenced with the use of a loud hailer to call the house to make contact with any occupant. The unedited handwritten statements of these three firearm team officers have never been disclosed. Examination of all the logs created at the scene revealed that these challenges, made with a loud hailer, happened minutes after the time that the police had been in conversation with someone within the house. Every police officer who refers in evidence to a loud hailer being used to make challenges to the house states that these challenges were met with no response. There is now clear evidence that the conversation and the loud hailer challenges were two distinct and separate events. The first, the conversation, with an individual. The second, later challenges with the loud hailer, which met with no response. But yet again, as is the case with so many elements of the Jeremy Bamber case, it appears that these two separate actions, which received two different responses, have been merged. In doing so, Essex police have managed to hide the fact that someone from within the house was speaking to the police minutes before the loud hailer challenges. Which officer was in conversation with someone in the house? Were further challenges made from a distance because Sheila threatened the police? We believe it is possible that rather than shouting through a window at the house, the conversation may even have taken place over the kitchen telephone, with the police possibly off-site and not at White House Farm. So why do we believe this to be the case? Throughout the morning, it is documented that the state of the telephone within White House Farm was changing from being engaged to being an open line. Several checks had been made of the telephone line of White House Farm throughout the morning between 3.42am and 5.50am, when it was eventually connected to the police internal line for monitoring. The evidence demonstrates that the phone was initially engaged at 3.42am, was an open line at 5.40am, and was engaged again at 5.47am. This is a clear indication that the phone was used, or at least the receiver removed from the base, on several occasions. Therefore, it is a strong possibility that the conversation was in fact over the phone, and the gist of the conversation was relayed by radio to the officers at the scene. During the conversation, threats may have been made which resulted in the challenges then being made by officers present at the farm using the loud hailer for safety reasons. It seems inconceivable that the police weren't constantly monitoring the phone line after their initial contact with British Telecom before 4am, as it was their only connection into the house. The police admitted that the line was consistently listened to after it was directly connected to the police station at 5.50am, but it would have been extremely negligent not to have done so before this time. If this was how the conversation did take place, then it enabled all the officers at the scene to truthfully deny that they had conversed with anyone in the house. Of course, this was not the whole story. However this conversation took place, it certainly was not the same event as the challenges made using a loud hailer. It is also peculiar that the CCRC questioned just two officers about the challenges made to the house in 2004. What was the purpose of interviewing P.S. Bues? He was not a member of the firearms team and subsequent to his initial involvement, he would have been instructed to stay back from the house at the time police surveillance was being conducted. What did P.S. Buse tell the CCRC during his interview? He is not the most reliable of witnesses, as his explanation for who saw movement in the main bedroom window 
and what this movement was has continually changed over the years, and this will be discussed in another episode. P.S. Adams was a member of the firearms team, but as with the interview conducted with P.S. Buse regarding this, no transcript has been provided to the defence. Why did the CCRC accept the explanation of police officers years after the event, rather than the written evidence from the day? Especially so, as P.S. Buse, for one, can be shown to change his evidence repeatedly as the years have advanced. The practice of simply believing the police over the documented facts must stop in the interests of justice. A report released on the 8th of March 2021, known as the Westminster Commission, came as a result of an investigation into the CCRC by the All-Party Parliamentary Group for Miscarriages of Justice. This specific issue was raised and the Cardiff University Innocence Project claimed that in some of its cases the CCRC accepted the police account despite unexplained anomalies within the investigation. A publication from 2019, written by Professor Caroline Hoyle and Associate Professor Mai Sato, entitled Reasons to Doubt, Wrongful Convictions and the Criminal Cases Review Commission, was cited in the report. Hoyle and Sato concluded that it is likely that the CCRC has been a little too complacent in assuming that institutionalised corruption and misconduct by police is rare. It is now for us to raise the following questions. Why did the CCRC not interview PC Collins and Delgado to ask about the circumstance in which a loud hailer was used to challenge the House? Why did they not interview PC Alexander Smart, who stated they then used a loud hailer? Had the fact that a previous conversation had taken place been edited from his statement made in September 1985 prior to it being typed up? It is also clear that the CCRC never considered the possibility that the police referred to in the log as in conversation might not have been the ones at White House Farm, but those monitoring the situation off-site. Another important factor to take into consideration is that at approximately 05.30am, an urgent telephone call was made to Inspector Montgomery by Firearms Officer Adams, who was at the scene with his team. This telephone call was requesting immediate firearms assistance. In his statement, Inspector Montgomery described that About 05.30 hours on Wednesday 7th of August 1985, I was off duty at my home address when I received a telephone call from HQ Information Room. This was to the effect that a firearms incident was at present in progress at a farm in Tolshunt, Darcy. Adams was already in attendance with a team of officers, but requested my attendance with a team to support him as there was a likelihood of a siege situation. I immediately contacted AOS Rosger at his home address, informing him to call out his section and report to headquarters immediately. I then telephoned APS Woodcock and APS Manners, and also instructed them to do likewise. I then went to the force range at headquarters, where I issued firearms to the following officers, APS Woodcock, APS Manners, PC Hall, PC Webb, PC Jeeps, WPS Jeeps, APS Mildenhall, APS Mool, and also drew my own weapon. And further, as APS Rosger and PC Brown had not turned up, I made arrangements for the issue of their weapons 
and proceeded in crew bus QK23. In her statement, WPS Julia Jeeps stated that she was at home and off duty when at 5.30am PC Rosger telephoned her requesting her urgent attendance at Essex Police Headquarters. Likewise, PC Hall gave evidence in his statement that About 05.35am on Wednesday 7th of August 1985, I was off duty at home when I received a phone call requesting my urgent attendance at work. At the time the call was made to Inspector Montgomery at 5.30am, there were already 15 police officers at the scene, which included a dog handler and seven firearms officers. Something happened which triggered that urgent assistance was required from three additional units. And, as the reported conversation with someone within the house had taken place approximately five minutes earlier, it can only have been this which led to Adams making this urgent request for immediate backup. The second issue in this alibi episode concerns an emergency telephone call made from within White House Farm whilst the police were outside. At 6.25am, an officer at the scene, probably Firearms Officer Sergeant Adams, requested two ambulances to attend White House Farm, one for immediate use and one for standby purposes. Within a minute, two ambulances had been arranged. But why did the police wait so long to request ambulances in the first place? What changed between 3.50am, when the first officers arrived, and 6.25am, that necessitated Sergeant Adams to require two ambulances at that particular time? The answer is simple. At 6.09am, a 999 emergency call was made from White House Farm whilst Jeremy was standing outside in the company of numerous police officers. All records of the call and the statements of the officer who received it, PC Nicholas Milbank, were hidden. In addition, references to this emergency telephone call were deliberately manipulated in the police logs and it appears that fraudulent entries were made in order to obscure the fact that this call had been received. This fresh evidence was uncovered by the Metropolitan Police during the Stoken Church investigation in 2002 but they did not advise the defence of it or the appeal court. The documentation involved was hidden behind public interest immunity restrictions and therefore could not be disclosed. However, a change in the PII rules subsequently enabled this material to be disclosed in 2011. But it took a further five years of painstaking reading every one of the 347,000 pages of material in this disclosure before we stumbled across this evidence. As we said earlier, the state of the telephone changed throughout the morning between off the hook and engaged. Jean Rowe was the BT operator who checked the line on two occasions. In a statement, she gave evidence that I can't be exactly sure of the time, but at about 4am on Wednesday the 7th of August 1985, I was at the switchboard when I received a call from the police headquarters in Chelmsford. I was asked to check the line of a Mulden telephone numbered 860209 to see if there was anybody speaking or if the phone was off the hook. I then checked this line and I could tell that the receiver was off the hook and the line was therefore open. There wasn't any speech but I could hear a dog barking and the noise was loud so it appeared that the dog was near to the receiver. 
I couldn't hear any other noise at all. I then disconnected myself from the line and informed the caller that the receiver was off. The caller she referred to was PC West, who had earlier found the phone to be engaged at 3.42am. The second time Miss Rowe checked the line at the request of the police, at approximately 5.40am, she said the line was open and she could hear a slight moving noise. The police logs record that the line was checked again at 5.47am by a person who Essex police have not disclosed the identity of and it was now found to be engaged again. At 5.50am, Jean Rowe was asked to connect the call to the police emergency line but she was not permitted to do this and gave evidence that at about 5.50am the same day, the same caller, PC West, came on the phone again and asked if it was possible to put this number through to the police headquarters to enable them to monitor it. I am not allowed to engage the direct emergency police line, so I again checked into this Malden number and then phoned the police headquarters and connected the two, thus enabling the police to listen to the line. However, the evidence shows that just prior to 6.09am, after 19 minutes of the police being able to monitor the line, the receiver must have been replaced. The evidence that a 999 call was made from the house is recorded on a Metropolitan Police high-priority action record print, which reads, Research Stoken Church for all documentation, including statements, notes, messages and documents that refer to PC Millbank N347 monitoring the 999 call made from White House Farm at 609 on the 7th of the 8th 85 and supply copies of the same into the system. This wording is unambiguous and states the 999 call as a fact, giving a precise time for the call. Prior to finding the Stoken Church action record print, it was assumed that an open telephone line from White House Farm was then connected to the police 999 line in order for them to monitor it, as stated on the incident log from the day. But in actual fact, this was not what happened at all, as Jean Rowe clearly stated she was not permitted to do that. In any event, the police were connected to the farm 19 minutes prior to this call being made. The incident log first created by Malcolm Bonnet has several different handwritten entries on it and is obviously written by more than one relief operator. However, these people have never been named by Essex Police. The entry on the log states, Open 999 line set up. Direct link to house with phone off hook. The entry at 7.47 states, close down 999 open line. What is obvious, and of the utmost importance, is that these entries have not been completed in the same pen or handwriting as other entries and have been added conveniently to the bottom and top of pages. No statement was made pre-trial by PC Mealbank, nor was he asked to give evidence in court about what he had heard when he monitored the 999 call made from the White House farm. This is highly significant. If PC Millbank had monitored the telephone line for nearly an hour and a half and heard nothing of any significance, surely the police would not have hidden his existence, but instead asked him to produce a witness statement to that effect, as this would have supported the police's case that all occupants of the farm were dead. Had PC Millbank made a witness statement, it is possible that the defence might have asked him about the origins of the telephone monitoring. 
and it is possible Milbank would have revealed that a call came from within White House Farm via the 999 line. Therefore, it appears that Essex police attempted to deliberately whitewash PC Milbank's involvement in the case. His importance was only realised on the discovery of the 2002 action report and the further discovery of a statement PC Milbank wrote in 2002 to the Metropolitan Police. No other documentation has ever been disclosed which states Milbank was involved in the case. Milbank's statement, dated the 18th of July 2002, consists of a single paragraph which concludes with the words I wouldn't have thought there would be any records to confirm these events. This is the first time I've been asked about this incident. How can PC Milbank have known there would not be any records to confirm the events? Did he have knowledge that Essex police destroyed them? PC Milbank was contacted in 2018 by Eric Allison, a Guardian journalist. Did you answer a 999 call from within White House Farm at 6.09am on the 7th of August 1985? His reply was, if the record says that I did, then that must be the case. As the record does say this, it would appear that PC Milbank was confirming that he did in fact answer a 999 call from inside the White House Farm. The Essex Police Homes Computer Index also makes three separate references to an emergency call which state, Copy of emergency call and log of events dated 7th of the 8th, 85. Copy of computer printouts, re-emergency call. Essex Police message, re-emergency call. Clearly, this evidence of a copy of the emergency call, the computer printout and the Essex Police message existed. However, it is unknown if the copy of the emergency call is an audio recording. None of these documents or recordings have ever been disclosed to the defence. The really disturbing fact is that not only did Essex Police have knowledge of this 999 call, but so did the Metropolitan Police, and therefore both forces knew that Jeremy had a cast-iron alibi and that there was life within the house at the time he was standing outside in the company of many police officers. Evidence which proves that Jeremy Bamber is innocent, and yet they still remain silent. These are just two of the issues which provide Jeremy with alibis. The certainty that someone was alive, conscious, speaking to those outside White House Farm, active within the farmhouse, when Jeremy had been standing in the company of police officers for over an hour and a half, means that he cannot have been responsible for the murders. Join us in the coming weeks to hear more evidence, which Essex Police never thought would be uncovered, in our next Alibi episode. 